You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. Are you upset and confused with the U.S. healthcare system? Dr. Dean Waldman is with us today to explain how there is a cancer in the system and it is killing what we love. This business talk show airs live on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 4 p.m. and Thursdays at our special time of 3 p.m. All of our shows can be heard live exclusively on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, we do encourage you to listen live during our broadcast times. The show is brought to you by our advertisers, Brandman University, Center Club, Commercial Bank of California, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, Smart Business Magazine, SNH Rubber, Succession Strategies, Tone Software, and UPS Protection. The goal for this show is to help you, our listening audience of CEOs running middle market firms, to improve your decision-making skills. Our first guest is, as I mentioned at the open, Dr. Dean Waldman, author of The Cancer in Healthcare. Dr. Waldman, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Uh, It's an honor to have you on the show. I'd like to start very simply by asking you to talk a little bit about your background. You're a doctor with an MBA. My background was fairly classic in the sense of I always wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist, take care of children with heart problems. I like children, quite frankly, much more than adults. And um, I trained at all the sort of usual good places, and I was good in research and teaching and uh, taking care of patients. And as a result, I became the chief of cardiology, actually, at the University of Chicago, uh, although I spent a lot of time in California, actually know Orange County well, saw patients in Mission Viejo. Anyway, the the sort of epiphany came when I became chief, and I suddenly realized that all of these things that I had studied and learned had almost no bearing on the business, the management, the strategy, the finances of actually running a very large uh, organization and a very large uh, budget. And so as a result, I said, the heck with this, I'm going to business school. So I went and I got my MBA, and then that was the real eye-opener when I began to understand how the things that business people know and have learned the hard way have some real applicability to healthcare and indeed give us a number of answers as to why the healthcare system is sick. So help me to understand how can it be that an industry as large as the healthcare industry can have such a disconnect between the service being provided and the people that are providing the service and the basic uh, in economics a sense, of the that's business. That's a very easy question to answer. This isn't a system. Healthcare is a bunch of, uh, to use the management term, a bunch of silos, each of which is living in its own world, trying to optimize its position. And in systems thinking, which was so important to me during my MBA training and, and frankly led to this book, The Cancer in Healthcare, it isn't a system. By that I mean the parts are not connected to each other in such a way as to produce the outcomes that the customers, the consumers, let's call them patients, want. But is that part of the challenge from your perspective? Sure. That the patients don't see themselves as consumers? 
I would say no. I would argue they see themselves as consumers. The problem is slightly different, and that is they see doctors and hospitals and nurses and so forth as deliverers of care rather than their partners uh, in care. Okay. Ah, that's excellent. We're going to talk about your book, The Cancer in Healthcare, but in fact, that's your latest book. Earlier, you've written Uproot U.S. Healthcare, which was first released, I understand, in 2010 and, and updated in 2012. Before we get into your second book, The Cancer in Healthcare, can you talk us a little bit about the major takeaways of your first book, Uproot U.S. Sure. Healthcare? Um, the That was really more a didactic book that's a book for uh, teaching purposes. That's a book for managers. It literally gives listings of uh, tools to use, how to modify them for healthcare, uh, what perverse incentives are, and how to get around them. The difference between turnover and retention, and why that is so fundamentally important uh, in business and everywhere else in healthcare, very much so. The problem is this. I finished that book, and, uh, you know, a lot of people read it, and the people who uh, read it thought it was good. The trouble is the people I want to talk to are more the general public than the sophisticated manager or the educated doctor. I want to talk to Mr. and Mrs. Main Street so they begin to understand things like, the word cost has no meaning in healthcare. Like, what is a perverse incentive and why doesn't my doctor have time for me? These are things that the American public needs to understand, and when they understand it, will begin to fix the system, which is only getting more broken as a result of uh, the Affordable Care Act. Oh, really? So we're talking with Dr. Dean Waldman. He is author of his latest book, The Cancer in Healthcare. We're going to be talking about that book in a little more detail in just a few minutes, but you said something right there that I didn't want to step over. You're an expert on the U.S. healthcare system. You're writing about our system that uh, largely our audience that listens are CEOs of middle market firms here in North America, mostly in the United States. In a very brief overview, sir, why do you think that the Affordable Care Act is not making the problem any better, but maybe making it worse? Oh, that, and again, that's in, in the broadest sense, an easy question to answer in the specific, it's actually a three-hour conversation, but the broadest sense, what health care needs to reform it is, if you will, the practice of good medicine on health care. And the first principle in the practice of good medicine is that you treat the cause of the patient's illness, you don't treat the symptoms. So a patient comes in with a headache, you don't just give him some pain pills, you figure out why he's got the headache and treat that. Right. The Affordable Care Act was supposed to reduce national spending and increase the availability of care, and I regret to inform you, and probably people know this, it's doing exactly the opposite. So it is not treating the reasons why we're overspending in the United States. It is not treating the reasons why we have a physician shortage and a shortage of nurses, uh, well over 500,000 open uh, slots in the United States. You have studied and you write about the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, before we take our first commercial break and come back to talk about your book, uh, we have about one minute left here on Critical Mass Radio Show. I'm talking with Dr. Dean Waldman. Is this challenge uniquely 
situated on the U.S., or do you... No, no, okay. and that, uh, we can end with that. Everybody's looking around saying, well, if our system doesn't work, somebody's does. Each of those systems in other countries has major problems, and you can't simply transfer them, and we can go into that if you'd like, but we, you can't transfer the Canadian system here, you can't transfer the German system here. Neither one of them will work here. Do they work in their countries? depends on what you define as work. Okay. Germany is a great example. They have two million Turkish workers who were invited there before the reunification. They are not officially citizens, and as far as their national health care system is concerned, they don't exist. That's analogous to saying 12 to 14 million illegal residents in this country will be by law, denied health care. Right. Wow. This is a complex issue. We have Dr. Dean Waldman obviously an expert in the subject as our guest. We're going to be coming back from this first commercial break to talk about his latest book, The Cancer in Healthcare. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back after these words from our commercial sponsors. Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Frenzy. Dr. Dean Waldman is our guest. He's, we're talking about his latest book, The Cancer in Healthcare. Let's start with your book. Tell me, why did you decide to write a second book on the subject? And the answer is, uh, again, straightforward, and that is I was talking to the wrong uh, people with Uproot U.S. Healthcare. I need to bring these issues in a simplified but clear fashion, and especially with Obamacare now in the equation, to Mr. and Mrs. America. Frankly, even though your show is uh, more for CEOs and sort of senior managers, that book is as much for their employees as it is for them. That's why I wrote this book. It is to, to make it very clear that there is a cancer in our health care. And the analogy is a very good one. There's a cancer in our health care system, and we need to deal with it. And until we deal with that cancer, all the rest of the stuff is just spinning our wheels. Okay, but as I, as I read your book, Dr. Waldman, I came away with it distinct sense that the cancer is pretty entrenched in the system. It's, yes. it's fed by greed, and there are very powerful forces that are actually in control of the healthcare industry. So how do we ferret out that powerful influence and return the healthcare to a more sane and stable system? If I... <laughs> If I said this was going to be easy, you, I hope, would laugh at me. The fact is, we have to first, we, the American people, who I like to call we the patients, we have to get our ducks in a row before we can make demands on our government. And by that I mean we have to have a national dialogue and make some basic decisions as a people. Those decisions are what led, for example, to the Bill of Rights, which, in my opinion, is one of the major reasons that our country has survived the trials that it's been through over the last 237 years. Given that, I want to see us talk to each other before we go and demand, for example, a system where, I'll give you a great example so it's clear, we, the, one of the things we have to demand of our government is a system where they keep track of the things that matter to us and what matters to us good health and long life the reason our system one of the reasons our system doesn't work is that we have all these perverse incentives where people are rewarded people inside healthcare are rewarded for the outcomes 
that the patients don't want. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, every businessman knows, hey, I've got to figure out what my customers want, and then, assuming I'm good at building that or creating that or servicing that or whatever, right. I'm going to provide that for them at a high quality, at a price that I can make a profit. Well, but the first thing is what the customers want. Well, we doctors, well, we'll start the easy. Insurance companies, how do they make money? They make money by not giving care. Mm. That's a great perverse incentive. Now, right. what happens if we turn the on, a, on its ear and we said, okay, we want insurance companies to make money every year, extra year I live, or based on how quickly I recover after my heart surgery or my hip replacement or my... So that they get a bonus when we get the outcomes we want if they just deliver the service but I'm not much better after my hip replacement, then they get a minimum amount of money just to keep going, but they don't get rewarded. So they would then have an incentive to have us live a long time and be healthy. Interesting. But aren't there always unintended consequences, especially yes. especially when you're talking about yes, something? Yes, there is, are. Okay. And the fact is that they are there now and they are they will be there in the future and yes some doctors and hospitals and insurance companies will suffer forgive the phrase for those people who don't want to take care of themselves who eat themselves into morbid obesity etc okay fine and then trying to care for them is a, is a daunting task but I'll give you a, a wonderful example, and I'm, uh, it's in the book. Joel Brenner, who's a physician I don't know, make a very long, complex story short, took the 36 most expensive, sickest patients in Camden, New Jersey, and just said, I'm going to do whatever the hell it takes to make them healthy. Bottom line was, after a year of doing that, he had cut the costs of, those, of the care of those people by over 50%. My point is being healthy and delivering good care in even the moderate term, not the short term, but the moderate term, is cheaper than anything else. I'm talking with Dr. Dean Waldman. He is the author of The Cancer in Healthcare. We're talking about his book, and I, I want to kind of build on what you said earlier, which I think is in line with what we're just talking about right now, that... Patients do not see themselves in a partnership with their doctor in the healthcare system. They give away that right. Do, do you see the challenge? And help me to understand how we get the U.S. population, which I think by and large has not had to think about, one, the cost of yes. care, and two, their own role in their own health by obesity and diabetes and all the other things that you yep. started to talk about. I mean, that is such a sea change in, in mentality. Dr. Waldman, how, how is that even possible to happen in this country? Well, you know, <laughs> what, what's that old phrase about, you know, the difficult we do today, the impossible takes a little longer? There are a number of people, I will answer your question, but there are a number of people who have said to me, whom I respect enormously, including a, a man named Andy Grove, whose name you ought to know since yes. he founded Intel, who initially thought that my ideas were great and that we should do them, and I don't know, two, three years after we started the discussions, he, he 
decided that healthcare is unfixable. Wow. It can't be fixed. And that's sort of subtext of what you're saying. And my attitude is, is somewhat different. God knows I respect the man enormously. And that is, as long as we take that attitude, we are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and we'll never fix this. We have to start from, yeah, it's a very tough road to hold. Start with something. Now, let me answer your question. Start with something simple. What if people actually had to pay for their care? What a revolutionary idea. Well, A, that would stop this whole uh, overspending of other people's money, what's right. called uh, in the book The Moral Hazard, which I consider one of these new oxymorons. It ain't moral, but it sure as hell is a hazard. You know, it's easy for me to spend money when it's not my money, but right. uh, maybe if I have to spend my money for my health, I'm going to think twice about eating that triple cheeseburger with uh, supersized fries because I'm going to have to pay for the consequences of my overeating. Right. That's why earlier I asked you, uh, I don't see that the U.S. consumer is a U.S. consumer in the healthcare field. In that industry, we're just a receiver of services because we don't many times even know how much the services yep. cost. And when yep. we see it, we yep. go, oh, glad, glad I don't have to pay for that $12,000 yep. for a week in yep. the hospital. Absolutely true. You are right on the money, forgive the uh, <laughs> double entendre, but I, uh, you know, people uh, throw Taiwan, for example, as an, uh, and there are some disadvantages to their system. But one of the things that is true of their system is the patients pay for care. Right. Well, and so uh, I, I don't want to evade your question your, your, or your your comment. You are correct. Right now, we are passive in the system, and it's easy to spend other people's money. In it. And uh, you know, if I get overweight, the doctor will give me a pill, and I'll fix it. And if my hip is is bad from arthritis, they'll put in a new one uh, instead of my exercising and taking vitamins and doing all the right things for my hip. So. Yeah, but that would change dramatically if suddenly we began to accept responsibility. And the way to do that, I think, is to accept fiscal responsibility. Um, Which then forces... You know, I'm on the board of our state-based exchange, and so here in New Mexico, which is rather interesting given that I think Obamacare is bad public policy, and yet I'm supposed to implement it. Um, and I'm, I've been asking people all over the state, what do you want for insurance? And all the middle-class uh, people, uh, the, uh, uh, the employees of all of your listeners as well as the CEOs who are listening right now, what do they really want? Well, if I really could get what I want, I just want catastrophic insurance, back to the insurance principle, so that I won't go bankrupt. Right. You know, set a number. I'll, ma I'll make it up. $2,000 a year or $4,000 a year. And other than that, I'll pay for my care and I'll shop for my care and I'll demand that the hospital give me or the lab give me a list of their prices uh, for a lipid panel. Well, you know, if one lab, and a lipid panel is a lipid panel, if one lab charges me 125 bucks and another lab charges me 30 Guess where I'm going? Yeah, I, I say, uh, and I'm talking uh, with Dr. Dean Waldman, I, I say people shop more for the care of their car than the care of their body. Absolutely. You're true. You're right. No so, question about it. And I, unfortunately, I'm up against the clock for this interview, and I have a whole other, you've opened up a whole line of questioning that I would like to dig into more, and you clearly have the 
detailed understanding of the system to help me understand it and translate it for my audience. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask uh, my producer, Crystal Nunley, if she can get back in touch with you and your people and see if maybe Barbara and Crystal can find another time to have you back on the show so we can start, it, start at this point and go a little deeper. Uh, one of the things I wrote down here, because I really wanted to talk, and so we'll do it the next time, is the whole concept of avoided cost. Okay. And that is, in the news today, with the $1,000 of pills, Sovaldi drug, um, and it's a great example of how business can actually help healthcare do the right thing for patients. But we can talk about that another time. All right, we're going to do that. I really appreciate you sharing just the tip of the iceberg of the conversation that we're going to have on the U.S. healthcare. I've talked in this segment with Dr. Dean Waldman. We've focused on a part of his book, The Cancer in Healthcare. How do people get it if they want to buy it, sir? Very simple. Just go to thecancerinhealthcare.com. All right, we're going to have you back on the show. Thanks for being a friend of the program, and welcome to the Critical Mass community. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Our second guest is Chris Bull. He's managing partner at McDermott and Bull. He's in the lobby. He'll be in the sh- in the studio here in a minute. When we come back from these words, don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be talking with Chris Bull from McDermott and Bull in just a minute. Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. As promised, Chris Bull, managing partner at McDermott and Bull, is in the studio. The question we're going to talk about today is how can a retained search firm find the right fit for your company's needs? But before we do that, I'd like to let you know that our audience demographic is 98% business owners and executives who listen to learn from the experiences of our guests. If your firm is interested in reaching these top decision makers, then advertising on the radio show is the answer. Each month, our sponsors gain valuable exposure through their support of the program. And with our exclusive prospect engagement program, Critical Mass will deliver up to 23 warm prospects to each of our advertisers each year. To learn more, contact Rose Chamora at 951-515-4661. That's 951-515-4661. All right, Mr. Bull, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. It's nice to have you here. Why don't we start by, give us a little bit of your background. Just uh, the highlights. You bet. And, and first of all, I'll ask you to and your listeners to excuse me. I'm dealing with a little cold or an allergy from the Santa Ana conditions, but I'm going to work my way through this. Background. So I grew up in Houston, Texas, uh, went to school at University of Texas. That was uh, the mid-'80s. And uh, for those that remember, that wasn't the best of times in Texas. So I made the decision to move on. Uh, found an opportunity with the Real Estate Investment Banking Group uh, here in Newport Beach, California. Made the move. Always thought I'd move back to Houston. <laughs> I am uh, one of the very few that did not move back, uh, and I've enjoyed it. I think it's been 27 years out here now, and I've enjoyed myself. And so my background professionally is mostly commercial, institutional, real estate, finance. How did you get into the retained search industry then? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, the industry, the business was introduced to me by my now business partner, Rod McDermott, who had a one-year head start on me with a firm out of Chicago called DHR International that uh, had an Irvine office. Uh, I ultimately drank that Kool-Aid, joined DHR in 2000. Uh, Rod and I became practice partners at that time, and it was the best of times in the economy and right. in the executive search business in early 2000. By the end of 2000, things were getting a little more difficult. We were spending a fair amount of time in the technology, mostly early stage venture Mm -hmm. technology stuff. 
that business was going away quickly. And so Rod and I had always thought about the idea of taking the best of what a boutique firm can do, take the best of what we'd learned to be part of a national firm and start our own group. And admittedly, we probably started it a little bit earlier than we'd planned based on the economic conditions. So in January 2001, we started McDermott and Bull. So talk to us about McDermott and Bull. Uh, what's your differentiated advantage? Simply put, why do clients choose to work with your firm? Are there other firms that offer to do or purport to do a similar service? Sure. You know, start off with a, a very early question we had asked ourselves uh, before we started the firm, and that is, who do we want to be? There's lots of ways to uh, to operate an executive search firm. You can be very narrowly defined in an industry and cross over geographic boundaries and do that nationwide, right. globally. Go deep. Uh, you go really deep, or you can do it the way we did it. And we chose to do it with a very, you know, we're fortunate enough to be in a marketplace and a geography where there's a concentration of, let's just call it both supply side and demand side. So there's lots of really high-quality companies here in Southern California to serve, and there's lots of wonderfully talented uh, candidates to pull from. So uh, we decided to be a very, very California, even more so Southern California, uh, retained executive search firm. So that served us really well. And I think uh, to this day, the fact that Southern California is a very difficult place to relocate people to. It's a very unique environment, unique place to live. Those of us that are here think it's wonderful. Um, What a lot of people don't realize is there's a lot of California bashing in the national media that we oftentimes don't even see. So when we're sourcing a candidate on the other side of the, uh, the country, uh, they've heard some of that media. You know, California, in, in addition to having the obvious tough rap on cost of living, you know, it gets a rap of financial challenges, bad right. government, right. Uh, overcrowded schools. And right. so as we're talking to those out-of-area candidates, it's difficult, not impossible. We do it all the time, but difficult to get them to relocate to Southern California. So it's absolutely imperative that a firm like ours has a very, very deep network and relationship base here in Southern California, which is what we do. And so that's the differentiators are that, that the depth of that, um, the, the, the relationships we have in Southern California, the brand that we have as a firm and our ability to go outside of the geography and evangelize that Southern California lifestyle for those candidates that we just have to have. Right. We're talking with uh, with Chris Bull, sorry, managing partner at McDermott and Bull. You know, we talk about Southern California kind of as one geography and, and physically it is. But when you look at it, Los Angeles, Orange County, Inland Empire, San Diego, those are all very different markets, aren't they? Yeah, it's a great question. It comes up all the time. And, you know, when uh, when we've got a company a client based in San Diego, we have a client based in Woodland Hill, Pasadena. Those are areas that are difficult to get to from other areas. And there are a lot of really good candidates that are, are well-intentioned when they say that drive's not going to bother me at all, but it right. does. It does. And, you know, it's up to us to, to vet that out. And, you know, somebody, quite honestly, if somebody's had a five, ten-year career of driving three hours a day, I'm okay with it. So <laughs> they somebody prove that, they can yes, do it, They right? prove they can do it. That's right. a choice they've made. But if you've never done it before, you don't know that it can take years off your life. So yeah. uh, we try to avoid that. And either it needs Somebody needs to do a modest relocation, or uh, we need to pass collectively and move on. Right, because it's not only finding people in Southern California for Southern California jobs; it's finding them that are even more tightly around the geography where you where they're going to end yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. Unless they're road warriors, because I, I did that for 
nine months, drove from Orange County to downtown Los Angeles, which was 57 miles one way, which could take less than an hour, or it could take over three hours. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, and it's, like I said, that's my constant line. It takes years off your life. <laughs> and uh, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest anybody do that, and we take that into consideration when we source candidates. Okay, Chris, one of the things that we, I was talking about before you came in and when you sat down is, you know, we're going to kind of explain a, what a retained search firm is. CEOs, middle market firms, I think they might understand it. But just to make sure, why don't we, in a few minutes that we have before the next commercial break, why don't you help people understand from McDermott and Bull's perspective, what does that term mean? Yeah, so you put a firm like McDermott and Bull into the category of retained executive search firm. And so what that essentially means is the retained portion means that a company, a client of ours, is paying us a retainer up front to engage us in the process. And our commitment to that client is we're going to go out to the marketplace, we're going to dig deep. First of all, we're going to clearly understand what success looks like in their mind, You know what that cultural fit is to that company, and then we're going to go out there and primarily source those what we call passive candidates, those people that are gainfully employed. They may not have updated their resume in literally years. We find them. We call them. We introduce the opportunity. Uh, they're intrigued. We uh, we uh, vet them for the right, uh, the right fit. If that all sounds good, then we invite them in. We spend a lot of one-on-one FaceTime with them and decide if they're the right type of fit for what our client's looking for. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting prospect because in a marketplace like this that, you know, I argue that we're at full employment at the senior executive level for really talented people. Wow. So if you are a company looking to bring in an absolute A player, it's not easy to find somebody that might be in transition and available to make a move. You've got to recruit somebody away, and that's what we do. Right. And, and that's, as you're describing your business model and your philosophy with you and your partner, Having, having the ability to go deep in Southern California with such a large population center is really important because finding those passive candidates, it's not no disrespect to a small city in the Midwest, but we're, we're not Des Moines, Iowa or something, right? I mean, we're, we're major metropolitan areas that, are, that just happen to be up against each other but are very different. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. I'll go back to your comment about geography. It's, it plays such an important part in recruiting here in Southern California. And you know, when I see some of our competitors from outside the marketplace that come into Southern California <laughs> to service yeah. uh, one of the companies here, it's hard because right. you really don't understand the dynamics, the landscape, the traffic patterns, the cost of living, the difference between what a house costs in Corona versus what a house costs in Huntington Beach, right. et cetera, et cetera. So there's extreme advantages to being local. And I happen to be a big advocate of, you know, when a company is looking to do a formal, you know, in- engagement, find a good quality boutique uh, retained firm in your marketplace. Because I, I get invited to go to other parts of the country to do search, and I have to say no. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate the confidence, but I'm not as good in Dallas, Texas, as I am in Orange County, California. I love what you just said there because I think more entrepreneurs should hold their line on what they know they do well and not get teased into going into markets where they underserve that market because the revenue is enticing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and by the way, I haven't always uh, been so the level of conviction around that. I learned the hard way. <laughs> Many of us do. That's why I do this radio show, right? Lessons learned. All right, we're talking with Chris Bull. He is the managing partner at McDermott and Bull. We're going to take our commercial break, and when we come back, we've got more to talk about, especially around middle market firms, which McDermott and Bull has great experience with. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. 
Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. Chris Bull, managing partner at McDermott & Bull, is our guest. I'd like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download our radio show as a podcast. You've downloaded over 16,000 shows during the last 30 days, and we here at the radio show appreciate your continued and your growing support. Of course, all of our shows can be heard live on octalkradio.net or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher.com, Spreaker.com, hundreds of middle market businesses' websites where we've had their CEO on the radio show and they put the player on their website, as well as various other business-oriented podcasting services. Chris, I like to ask our guests when appropriate to share their guiding principle. And what we mean by guiding principle here on the radio show is of all the things you've learned in your business career, uh, have you developed uh, with your partner kind of an overarching philosophy on how you approach the business and how you're growing it into the future? Sure. Okay. Yeah, it, it may sound incredibly fundamental, but character, whether it's uh, in, uh, recruiting internally for our own firm and we're a firm made up of roughly 30 professionals, or certainly as it relates to uh, uh, recruiting on behalf of our clients to the extent we can do that in the interview process and we work really hard to do it that you, you hire for character and i didn't just learn that in this industry and in this business with mcdermott boy i learned it earlier in my career and somebody shared that with me and it's not always easy to, to vet against that but to the extent you can do it i see it all the time in the interview process as i'm going through i'm asking certain questions and based on the way those questions are asked or answered or you know literally the way the, the way people answer those questions right, not you, what they say yeah it, or what they don't say <laughs> so it sounds incredibly fundamental but i think over the years of, of being in this business i've gotten uh, better at my craft of interviewing and selection and to the extent you can get around that uh, that character question you hire for character excellent you know as you answer that question i was also thinking about your model because uh, having been in the corporate world for a number of years and having a few corporate relocations I recognized that I was not operating at full strength during that time. I mean, it takes you a while to relocate, to get acclimated. If you're married with kids, there's there are a lot of distractions in your life. And when you come in at a senior-level position for a middle market firm, which are really strategic hires, the company really needs that person engaged as soon as possible. And that can really be challenging for the candidate because you're trying to manage all the stuff at home and show up in a way that delivers value early. Yeah, I, I think you've got a good take on that. I'll add one more thing to that. Um, you can have a candidate that's absolutely knocking the cover off the ball over a period of 6, 9, 12 months, and they walk in sheepishly to the CEO and share that they've got to move on because a trailing spouse does not like the uh, move to Southern California. Didn't know what we were getting into. Didn't, didn't know what we were getting into, and uh, the client says they were they were doing such a great job for us. The candidate loved it, but that trailing spouse, male or female, just may not feel like it's a good fit. Right, so it's not a good fit. Yeah. Right? And it's going to detract from their performance. It's an expensive mistake to make. It is. And it's un, it's equally unfair to the candidate. Yeah. Right? Because they pulled themselves across country. I always say to people, it's more important that the candidate makes the right decision almost than the company. Because the company will ultimately recover. But for you, it's on your resume now. You've got to deal with it. You've got personal things to go along with it. Yeah. So people look... When you're looking for a job, really be a little bit selfish about the next job that you yeah. take. Yeah. It's easy to evangelize or to oversell the Southern California lifestyle right. when you're talking to candidates in a different part of the country. Because especially this time of the year, getting into the winter. Yeah, especially this time of year. But, you know, it, it, you've got to be true to the candidate. To, to your point, it's an expensive mistake to make for everybody when you make it. And so, to be fair, you've got to be able to talk with candidates about those things that might be perceived as less than ideal in that Southern California lifestyle. And we can easily talk 
talk about those for about the next half an hour as well. So right. you need to be frank with that candidate because I'd rather them uh, hear about it in our first or second conversation than right before the offer is made or even worse than that, six, nine months into the employment. Right. My brother, I'm, my brother's three years older than I am. He brought me out here after I graduated in, from Pittsburgh, the University of Pittsburgh in December. And right. We left there in Jan- <laughs> It was January. Yeah. And you I'd have been here before, but it was always the summer. Come out here in the winter, quote unquote, and it's 70 degrees in sure. the palm. Palm trees are swaying, and two weeks into my month vacation, I had a job, a girlfriend, an apartment. I had everything back in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I was like, dude, I'm not going home, right? It's because you can fall in love with the climate. Yeah. But you also then, and it took me six months, really. I remember this, six months of acclimating, and I was a single man, really, with no responsibility just to find a job, to really get into the Southern California lifestyle. Yeah, sure. So it's not always easy to do. All right. We're talking with Chris Bull. He's managing partner at McDermott & Bull. Let's help middle market CEOs that are listening to the radio show. We have about five minutes left here on the radio program, Chris. Help them to understand when they should look at a strategic hire and consider a retained executive search firm. Yeah, thanks for asking. That's that's a nice softball. The uh, you know the first thing I'll, I'll reference real quick is you know the retained executive search business has been around for decades, but primarily used by larger Fortune 500 companies for years and years and years. And at one point, the middle market said, "I want I want some of this. This is a good service offering. Uh, we don't have it in the middle market." So that's allowed firms like ours to exist and service that classic, classic, in this case, Southern California middle market. So, uh, you know, the companies that are, when the difference between good and outstanding in a functional leadership role is key to the enterprise, think about uh, a retained search firm as a solution. Because if good is good enough, you can do it yourself. There's lots of tools out there that can allow you to, with a little effort, do some internal recruiting and get your, you know, good candidate. But if outstanding is the absolute mandate for that hire, then, you know, you probably need to go out there and hire a firm that will, our offering, what we, our commitment to our client is, we'll go out there and we'll search the, the passive job market and find a slate of hireable, not a large slate, by the way. If we're doing our job right, it's four to six okay. final candidates that should all, if we're doing our job right, be hireable, and it should be difficult to narrow that field down to two in order to ultimately hire one. Again, we're, we're looking for that culture fit. We're looking for that track record of success. We're looking for that that understanding of the industry vertical they're getting into. And, you know, that's our commitment. It's not easy. Uh, We have to, as a colleague of mine puts it, we have to kiss a lot of purple frogs Mm -hmm. to find that final slate of four to six to present to our client. And, by the way, it's important for you and your listeners to know, you know, the process is 90 to 100 days. Uh, It's not done overnight. So if somebody comes to us, and this is not unusual to hear this, and we need this person, and we need this person in the next 30 days, we have to gracefully pass and say that that just doesn't play to our strength. Right. They're not going to be happy with the process, right? They're yeah. going to be, yeah. So you said something that I have, because I think it was tongue-in-cheek, or maybe it's not. When, in your experience, does a middle market firm have an executive-level position open and they can accept good, not outstanding? It's not my experience working with middle market firms that when those when those positions come open, they can accept a not an A player. I hate to use that term because that sounds kind of, to me that sounds kind of like, yucky frankly but to get the right fit of the person i mean do you really i mean do you, 
It, it you know to answer your question, Rick, it's it's generally less sophisticated companies that will share that good is good enough. Okay. Surprisingly and disappointingly, I do I do hear that a fair amount. Wow. Uh, it's one of my qualifying questions when I get a call <laughs> and somebody's like, oh, "Should I think about a solution like yours?" And I ask that question, and the occasional good is all I really need for this role. I said, "Let me give you some tips on how to go out there and find good." Right. Because they're available. They're available. Right. And they're uh, on the job board. But uh, you know, rock stars are hard to come by. They're hard to find. They're hard to convert. Uh, they're hard to close. Right. Yeah, because the passive job market, there's a reason why they're not looking, right? They're not unhappy and they're successful would yeah. be my assumption. Yeah, I just, just this afternoon before I came over here, I was talking to a candidate who was speaking with one of my colleagues. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat interested. I haven't uh, revised my resume in over 10 years, uh, but this sounds interesting. And so my, uh, my recruiting partner put me in touch with this person. I talked to him for a good half an hour, helping them understand exactly what the opportunity is, what the, the vision is what the sex appeal might be to him and at the end of the conversation he said i think it'd be foolish for me not to give this a closer look and i can disagree chris i'm talking with chris bullish managing partner at mcdermott and bull do you find when you sort of heat up a passive candidate maybe that job search wasn't right for them but does that then create a touch point maybe for future searches when you've got them sort of thinking at least about you know the opportunities outside yeah. their company yeah i think that's uh, i think i know where you may be getting at i think it's it's wise for executive level corporate folks to you know have a few relationships right. in the executive search business and right. and, and and have them think about you and to the point where if it's not the right opportunity for you offer up trying to help them and hey I know a couple people that might be the right individuals for your particular your particular search engagement and we remember that we right. appreciate that and that that's a person we're going to be calling again with future opportunities because by no means is every opportunity is, has the same level of appeal to a candidate but when I talk with somebody about today it might not be the right one you know next month may have one that hits the middle of the target for them right because unfortunately all too often I have seen over my career in the corporate world that people successful people are so driven about the job that they don't really think about well what if I don't want to be here anymore kind of a thing and they don't have these relationships that they should have it's an investment in time away from delivering results for their employer I understand that but the, you need to do that to be in, in charge of me Inc yeah no it, it's wise to do it it's, I, I talk with business leaders functional business leaders CEOs uh, often that we'll talk about you know the relationships they have with search professionals like me, and they said it's imperative because right. uh, I need to leverage them on occasion to do a search for me, and other times I need to leverage them to help me find something new. Right, it's only a good business practice, and yeah. so not everybody that listens to the radio show is our, is a CEO and a, a top executive. Some are uh, executives who are looking to move up. And that's an opportunity as well, right? You're a successful C-suite person, maybe not the CEO, and here's a chance to be considered for that position. And, and by the way, Rick, I mean, uh, different search firms do it a little bit differently. With our firm, we'll go on occasion a little deeper into the organization. So it's just not the C-suite. Uh, it's We do a lots of VPs of X okay. and the occasional director of X. Okay. So uh, we will go, into, go, go deeper into an organization to help good clients of ours. So if someone wants to learn more about McDermott and Bull, how do they find you online? Yeah, go to, uh, you can either type in McDermott and Bull or go to MB Search, M as in Mary, B as in Boy, search.com. Our website is it's pretty well crafted and tells a good story, and it'll help you either put your resume in our database or inquire about the idea of doing a search. One of the other things that I really have been impressed with your firm, and you, it's a commitment that 
that, as far as I can remember, your firm has been committed to, and that is helping helping professionals in the Southern California marketplace network and and meet people and learn. And your mixers and the other things that you're doing, it's a part of your business model, isn't it? It's a commitment you and your partner have made to the community. Yeah, I, I give uh, I give my partner Rod a lot of credit for that. He had a vision years ago of of trying to help out those you know senior level executives that might be in transition for any one of a number of reasons to kind of help them network and and stay connected. We have a, a group called the McDermottable Executive Network, which is quite large here in Southern California and the Bay Area. We get that group together. We have kind of separate groups. We have working member groups. We have groups in transition. We break them out into functional areas, smaller groups. So there's it. it's not really a business um, initiative. I shouldn't say it's a business. It's not a profit center. It's a cost center. Exactly. Yeah, but it's, it's the right thing to do for the marketplace. And, and that's why it, I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, it pays back in volumes, and I'm glad we do it, and I appreciate the fact that Rod thought of it years ago, and a lot of energy to, goes towards that initiative. I, I think it's good karma. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate frankly. that. All right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the interview that I've just done with Chris Bull. I have. He's managing partner, McDermott and Bull. I would in, strongly encourage you to consider looking at their website, learning more about the services they offer. Thanks for being a friend of the radio show and a part of our community. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. All right. I'd like to thank our advertisers for supporting the program, Bandman University, Center Club of California, Commercial Bank of California, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, Smart Business Magazine, S&H Rubber, Succession Strategies, Tone Software, and UPS Protection. Our engineer for today's show is Paul Roberts. Our producer was Crystal Nunley. We have a whole team of people that help to make this show as professional as it is and content-rich. If you know of anybody who would like to be a future guest on the radio show, reach out to us on our website, which is criticalmass4for.business.com. This is your host, Rick Franzi, saying until I talk to you the next time, I hope all of your business decisions move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi. 